Welcome to Church Folks, the new podcast where we interview folks from our church community about who they are and what God is doing in their lives. I'm Zach Dunlap, pastor of Multisite at Birmingham and Berkeley First. Throughout the Bible, people are encouraged to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Continuing in that tradition, this podcast offers a forum for people to get to know one another and be inspired. Our hope is that the stories of these church folks empower you to share your stories, to inspire others, and to be a part of beloved community together. I'm here today with Jeremiah Wade Olson. Jeremiah, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, my son or my wife. <laughs> loudly I don't, or I don't, quietly? Um, pretty loudly. Pretty loudly. He wakes up at somewhere between five and six and then screams and then I hold him or I don't hold him and then the day starts. So He's 15 months old today. Most of his life has been a pandemic. Jeremiah, what's it been like raising a baby and now a toddler in the midst of all we've been going through? I mean, it's definitely not something I would recommend, you know, (laughs) it would be better even just not being able to go to church, not being able to see people, not being able to realize like, oh, this is just a super common thing. Everybody goes through these problems. I think the nice, the nice side of it has been, you know, we've spent a tremendous amount of time together, you know, um, we don't even have a babysitter. So I'm, I'm predominantly with him during the day. And like, there's not the same distractions because he's a pandemic baby, Yep. you know? And so he just, I just watch him explore basically. What brought you to the church in general and to this church in particular? Sure. Um, so I grew up Baptist, uh, my dad was in the Navy. We bounced around a lot. Grew up in a pretty conservative Baptist church. Moved to North Carolina. Went to a pretty um, white Episcopalian church that I wasn't really feeling. Um, college, sort of in and out of church. Um, and then when I was in my late 20s, I tried to get back to it, basically. Um, I had a job for a year in Pennsylvania, so I found a Baptist church up there. Um, moved to Flint, I think eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, um, sort of went church shopping up there. And then when I met Patrice, she's always been like a consistent church goer. So, um, we started going to Cass in Detroit and then over time we knew we were going to have kids. And so like Cass is not necessarily that demographic. Um, so we went to Birmingham, we went to a place in Waterford, you know, just the regular church shopping thing. Sure. Um, and then we, we started coming here. I'm glad you found Berkeley first, man. It's a joy to be the church with you. What value do you find in being a part of Christian community? I mean, I think it's super important. I think that's one thing the pandemic has sort of illustrated is just a lot of the distraction of everyday life. And a lot of the almost like detached reality of just like American culture Mm -hmm. where it's so much about like, where are you going? What are you eating? What are you buying? You know, and it's not necessarily like values based in my opinion. 
And so to have a church is the grounding, you know, it's, it's, and it's also a place where you can be held accountable because like you don't have to be held accountable in regular society. You can just find whatever subgroup you're in and then they'll tell you how amazing you are, you know? And I've always sort of been of the opinion that like, if people are upset with me or if I'm getting negative reactions, like it's probably me. (laughs) So um, I think the pandemic and the church have sort of collided in the past year and been like, these are the things that are, are important, mm. you know, and when things get taken away, when you can't go walk around a mall, you know, like, what do you default back to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When have you felt closest to God? And conversely, when have you felt furthest from God? So it's kind of weird. Um, when I was younger, like a teenager or like around that age, it was like being out in nature, you know, being out in the mountains or the desert or what have you. And that continued for a long time. And like really the past couple of years, like I've realized like God's everywhere. Like you, this, it's just, we don't always, sometimes we're just distracted but God's God's everywhere and it's not just outside and it's not just in a church and it's not just with certain groups of people. I think God is just everywhere. Um, and even we were walking in this park in Waterford with Alosha and he was like waving his hands up in the air, like he's in a praise band. And then there's like this bridge and he was just laying down on the bridge and he looked just so happy and content. And I was like, he's probably experiencing God because he doesn't know any distractions yet because he's a baby and he's a baby without like access to other (laughs) babies and toys and all this other stuff. And so he's just like hanging out. Um, But I think I, I haven't like lost anybody in the pandemic, but due to COVID, but we've lost several people not due to that. And I had a student die like recently recently like in the past month and it was just like thinking about these people's lives and how important they were and there were people that I may have dismissed in the past because they weren't like traditionally successful necessarily Mm. but like just seeing the beauty of their lives and thinking about that has been like oh god was with them you know god's just everywhere are there particular practices or tools or perspectives that have helped you cultivate an awareness of God's presence? I just try to turn my brain off and only focus on one thing at a time. Mm. Like we go out in the woods, there's a wooded area by our house and like Alosha just spends like, he'll spend hours handing you a leaf. You're like, Oh, thank you. You're so generous. And then, he hands you another leaf, you know, and I used to try to like listen to a podcast or listen to music. And now I'm just like, all right, this is what we're doing, you know, mm. and I'm, I'm trying to do that more with stuff. And like, it's actually a little more efficient, but I think just focusing in on one thing has been helpful to me. You mentioned um, your students. What do you teach? So I teach public policy classes. Um, I teach what's called public administration, which is basically like business administration for 
um, government and nonprofit. Um, so that's that's mostly what I I teach. Um, I teach at U of M Flint. Um, that's why I moved to Michigan. Jeremiah, you have literally written the book on how American prisons punish the vulnerable through discriminatory systems, structures, and actions. Can you give our listeners a glimpse into what you mean by punishing the vulnerable? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of books on this. I wrote one book. Yeah, <laughs> not the I, book, I, but a book. I, I did a book on it. Um, so when I was real young, like middle school, probably, we used to drive by this prison every day. That was, we were living on a military base and then we drive by this prison to go to school. And I always thought like, that's where the scary people were, you know? And then over time, I sort of realized that a lot of people in prison are in prison because they're poor or they're in prison. I mean, that's, that's the predominant reason. And then a lot of things are just attached to that, um, in terms of race or in terms of mental health, you know, cause mental health impacts poverty, poverty impacts mental health. So a lot of this stuff is, is related. And I think over time, I just realized it's not necessarily your behavior that gets you sent to prison. It's more so your behavior plus your ability to defend yourself. So like if I get caught, for, you know, small level drug possession or a DUI or, or what have you, like some of the people I, I know, family members or friends, like if, if they get a DUI, they go to jail and other people, if they get a DUI, they get a lawyer and they don't go to jail, mm -hmm. you know? And so a lot of it is really about like the ease at which you can be arrested. And then can you afford a lawyer? Most of the people in prison can't afford a lawyer. Um, almost all the people in jail can't afford a lawyer. Um, and so they're getting plea bargains They're It's just, it's just really a very unfair system. That is not what in general people think it is. It's, we're not really locking up bad people. We're locking up vulnerable people that are easier to arrest and, and convict. And most of them have, significant problems. Um, so like most people in prison were making less than a thousand dollars a month before they went to prison, which is like super hard to live on. Um, most people, about 80% of people have either a mental health disorder or a substance abuse disorder, you know? Um, and so, and a lot of that's tied into poverty too. You know, they live in super stressful environments. You know, I work in Flint. Um, I lived in Flint. And if you live in an area with bad schools and lead pipes and poor nutrition, all of these things impact each other. Um, and so I think over time, I just sort of realized it's not necessarily about what you do. It's about um, sort of the political resources that you have. So the system is not necessarily designed to punish, you know, quote unquote, crime or criminals, um, but in practice really punishes um, those who are impoverished or who are struggling with mental health issues or experiencing other vulnerabilities like that. Yeah, I don't think the system is designed to punish those people. But like if you take a place like Singapore, they have really strict laws and really strict enforcement of laws. Right. So Singapore has has really low levels of crime. The United States. So if we take like 
drug crimes. You know, there's like 12 million regular marijuana users. So you can't lock up 12 million people. So we decided like a behavior is harmful. We want to punish it, but we can't lock up 12 million people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so we have to punish some people for this. So who are we going to punish? It's almost like when you're, when you're back in school, like elementary school, like you have to keep order. So you got to punish somebody. So who do you punish? You punish the kid that, you know, talks too much or acts up or what have you. Right. Cause you have to send a signal. So I don't think that necessarily um, stuff is designed to punish poor people. I just think that it's designed to punish someone and those are the easiest people to punish. Um, and a lot of times over time, people and neighborhoods and cities gain reputations, right? So Flint has, a, before I moved to Flint, people were like, don't move to Flint, you'll get murdered, right? Um, I mean, not a lot of people, but a handful of people would say stuff like that. And Flint's a pretty big city with a lot of different people in a and lot of different areas. you successfully lived there and were not murdered, as it turns out. <laughs> no, I have, I have not been murdered yet, to my knowledge, you know, but like certain areas get the reputation and then because of that, they get heavier police enforcement. And then because of that, they get a worse reputation. And then because of that, they get heavier police. I mean, a lot of this stuff is 50, 60 years in the making, you know. To what degree do racial and ethnic disparities play into this too? I mean, it's, it's huge. Unfortunately, in the United States, poverty and race are intertwined um, because of historical discrimination, because of current discrimination. Certain groups are easier to exploit, basically. So immigrants, uh, racial minorities. Um, but it's really, like, statistically speaking, Incarceration falls really heavy on young men, young poor men, young poor black and Latino men. Um, and it's it's really on this specific population. Um, and I think sometimes we we look at racial groups as like monolithic, you know, um, and it's just it's just not. And it's really important to not view a racial group as monolithic because you, if, if poor people in a racial group are suffering disproportionately, you want to help out them, right? Um, you don't necessarily want to help out people who are middle-class and upper-class and doing really well, you know? Um, and I think, I mean, this is just like an opinion thing, but I think a lot of, you know, white Americans don't know a lot of successful black people, mm -hmm. you know? And so they, they sort of lump everyone into this group and sort of ignore like this, the huge amount of diversity within the groups. And I think the problem with that is that we have these reputations and stereotypes of, of certain groups being prone to crime or prone to violence or what have you. And when you focus completely on that, instead of on poverty and mental health and all of the like different factors at play, then it, it just sort of reinforces these racial stereotypes. Jeremiah, you love Jesus and you're passionate about justice. I'm assuming that there's a connection there. How does your faith in Jesus Christ impact your desire for justice or vice versa? I mean, Jesus is a victim of capital punishment, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It's, it gets sanitized in different ways, but like Jesus was killed by the state 
and Jesus was hanging out with the marginalized, right? That was, that was the whole thing, like hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and poor fishermen and, and what have you, you know, that's, that's what it was for. Um, and I think, you know, the idea that you're here for the sick, you're not here for the wealth, for the healthy, you're here for the people that are struggling, not for the people that are doing really well. And even for the people that are doing really well, like the, the idea is you have to sacrifice for the people who are not doing as well. You know, if you're really wealthy, you're supposed to get rid of your wealth, you know? Um, and so I think really early on, it was like, you have to, you have to care about poor people because Jesus cared about poor people. Mm. You have to care about injustice because Jesus was a victim of injustice. And so you can't have this person that you base your religion on and your philosophy on, and then just sort of conveniently ignore his teachings. Earlier when you were talking about your students and everything too, um, you, you touched a little bit on this notion of how uh, we as Americans define who is successful or not successful um, or who is valuable or not valuable. Um, as followers of Christ, how should we see our own value or success or the values or successes of others? How should we define that? By what criteria? I mean... I think we def as a culture define success as money and prestige, you know, and I don't, I, I mean, that's, that's cool. And, you know, but you can never be super successful that way because there's always people who have more money and more prestige than you. And I think like, I think back to my time at, at Cass and like Reverend Fowler is not like this prestigious person necessarily or super wealthy person, but she's a person that has dedicated her life to helping these vulnerable populations, you know? And to me, like that's, that's more valuable in my view than, you know, different ways you can make a million dollars, you know? Um, and I, I think because we have this this idea that success is based on money or based on prestige, we create walls that separate us from other people. And even like a, there are people with, you know, different disabilities or developmental disabilities. I think it's really easy to build a wall around them and not care about them and not see the value in them. You know, I think part of the problem with success being defined with prestige or money is we don't care about or love people enough that don't have prestige or money. I've heard it said that a lot of the trouble in the world comes from the fact that we love things and use people instead of loving people and using things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What practical steps can we take to change some of these injustices? Um, systemically or even in our own personal lives. I know um, it's easy to look at, you know, let's say the injustices of, you know, the American prison system and, and agree that, yes, that's a terrible thing. Somebody should fix that. But what does that mean for me and my personal life? What difference can I possibly make? I think that's a really hard question. And I think sometimes 
people have a lot of hubris about like, I can come in and solve this. And, you know, I was, I was very appreciative over the summer, like a lot of the black lives matter protests and people seem to care a lot more, but then it, some of it was almost like, I care about this now. So let's fix this problem, you know? And like, these problems are really complicated, multi-generational problems. So it's not, and we live in a democracy, so you can't just come in and say, we're going to switch these things up. I think at a personal level tied into that is just appreciating people's journey for their journey and not trying to separate ourselves. And even the people that are in pain in your life that are causing you pain, like almost have to not take that personally and try to love them and, and appreciate them. Um, so I have some family members that struggle with alcoholism and they've done deeply painful things, you know, but, and it would be really easy to write them off. And I have at times written them off, but when you write people off, then they don't have that support system. They don't have people that care about them. Then they drink more Then they get a DUI. Then they lose their job. Then they end up in a crappier neighborhood. Then they get, you know, like all of these things compound on, on each other. I think just sort of trying to be humble and trying to realize that, you know, God is everywhere and everyone is sort of equally important and just like taking a step back and trying to love people instead of like, I spent a lot of time being like, Oh, this family member is worse than me because they have alcoholism, but really they just, they just had a different journey, you know? And I, I could have been, I could have been them. If I took two left turns, I may have been them, you know? And I think just trying to have that respect and appreciation for people in prison or people in poverty, I think is important. So to see all people as, as having inherent value and to set aside some of our comfort and our convenience in the pursuit of like actual human relationships, um, including human relationships with people that the world has sought to dehumanize. I, I think sometimes we dehumanize people because we're scared and because we don't want to be, we don't want to experience their lives or their pain. But I think, you know, at a certain level, we're all, we're all the same and like you're me living a different life, you know, and I can try to imagine your life and try to understand that. And you know, I'm never going to understand that completely, but at least then hopefully I don't, I'm not as resentful that you're living a different life than me. And I think just sort of trying I'm, I'm so appreciative of like my wife and my son because it's like things could have gone very differently, you know, and I'm very, very fortunate. And even when we, like, if I have an argument with my wife, I try to be like, all right, well, what is, what are we trying to accomplish here? Because if we're just trying to accomplish like superiority or dominance or being right in an argument this is going to go on forever, you know, but if I can just be like, Hey, I love you. I'm sorry. I was dumb for doing that. I'm going to try not to do it again. You know, it's like a lot of like feedback mechanisms. If you, if you approach people in a negative way and they approach you in a negative way, now it's almost like how Flint's gotten this reputation. Just all these events compile on top of each other. And that happens in our personal lives too. So as you look at the 
injustices and those little pieces of justice too and and what's right and wrong and good and bad about the world what gives you hope i mean i th- i think that there's a god right like that's i don't think we're alone in this and i think that like there is for the Tuesday morning group, the the reading is some letter from Paul and it started, it started with like, I rejoice in my suffering for you. Right. And at first I was like, Paul's being kind of dramatic right now, <laughs> but I was like, this suffering exists because it's part of the world and God is in the suffering, you know? And like, it's not just about like, thank you, God, I got my degree or thank you, God, I got this house or thank you, God, I got this whatever promotion. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, thank And really like the past year, I've been really, really thankful for the suffering because so often I'm like numb, you know, and I'm just going through life and just checking boxes and doing work and blah, blah, blah. But like there's been so much sorrow the past year and like, I've just tried to be thankful for that because I know like one of my friends was killed and I know that like God was there, you know? And sometimes it's like, well, why didn't God save this person? I I don't know, but I know that God was there. I don't know why he's not with us anymore, but I know that God was there and that God was with his family, you know, and God's still there. Sometimes we do bad things and then we're like, where was God? It's like, well, I mean, it's not necessarily like God's, we have free will, you know. Any other thoughts or reflections to share with us as we kind of wrap up? I don't know. I just think it's the past year, the pandemic, having a baby, these sorts of things. It's, it's like made me feel more fully human you know and just like more like my my emotional range has is a lot bigger now than it really has been except when I was maybe in like middle school you know like I've been numb and keeping my head down for a long time you know and I'm just appreciative of a chance to examine my own values and like what is what is going on in this world i don't know i think i think the more i give up of myself the the fuller i become which is really weird but it's like as i empty myself i get all this like love and empathy and understanding and like god's presence that's not there because i was like holding on to what i wanted to happen So if you're listening right now, know that God is with you. God is with you in the joy. God is with you in the suffering. God knows what it is to suffer. God suffers alongside the poor and the vulnerable. And friends, let's look out for each other. Jeremiah, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's a joy to be the church with you and your family. Thank you, Zach. That concludes this episode of Church Folks. Thanks for listening. 
You can find out more about Birmingham and Berkeley First on our websites, fumcbirmingham.org and berkeleyfirst.org. Whether it's through our church or some other church, we hope you take the time to be part of beloved community, seek justice, and share your stories. Peace.